Amen. Well, this morning we are in the 83rd Psalm, which I will uh, advise you right before we read it. This is uh, one of the more obscure Psalms, um, but it is uh, not little, it's not insignificant in its meaning. Psalm 83, the heading says, a song, a psalm of Asaph. O God, do not remain quiet, do not be silent, and O God, do not be still, for behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, come and let us wipe them out as a nation, let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gabal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Assyria also has joined with them. They have become a help to the children of Lot, Salah. Deal with them as with Midian. As with Sisera and Jabin at the torrent of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and all their princes like Zebah and Zalmanah, who said, let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind like fire that burns the forest and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire, so pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Lord. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever and let them be humiliated and perish, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. God add blessing to the reading of his word. This is one of those passages where you think, well, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of blessing in this. But remember, even the book of Revelation, which is full of so many judgments and uh, the wrath to come, begins with a statement of blessing. Blessed is he who reads the words of this prophecy and blessed are they who hear. So there is blessing for us even in these hard portions of scripture. Let's talk about what kind of psalm this is that we just read, this seemingly obscure psalm. It, it is a national lament. That is, this is a song for the, for the nation of Israel to sing in light of military aggression. It's a lament and prayer for God's intervention in time of military crisis. Now, the words we and us are not used in this psalm. It's, you don't ever get, oh God, help us. But nonetheless, this is a communal song. Uh, there, there is actually one time where my first blank in uh, verse 13 oh my god but that doesn't just mean that this is the words of one man this is the, the the words for the whole nation to sing as if they are one man it's a communal song as it talks about your people and Israel as a whole there are other psalms that are kind of like this there's I listed half a dozen of them there that uh, where there's songs for the whole nation to sing in times of crisis 
So this psalm we read, the first half of it, verses 1 to 8, contains the lament, as well as a lament. A lament is, uh, strictly, a lament is where, oh God, this is terrible, look what's happening. But then there's also uh, a complaint, and the, the difference between lament and complaint is that the, com the complaint says, God, do something about this. It's not just rehearsing how bad it is, but actually pleading with God to do something. So, and don't take this to mean it's complaining against God, like a complaint, like God's a complaint department. It's not that. But, you know, there's a, there's a grief, there's a grievance that has to be addressed, and God's the one to bring the help. So the first half is that, and then the last half calls on God to intervene in really dramatic fashion. Uh, they are what's called imprecatory prayers, prayers of judgment for God to bring down the enemies. What can we say about the setting of this psalm, where it came from and how it was used? Well, we know that the author is an Asaphite. We're told in the heading it's a song, a psalm of Asaph. Asaph was the chief musician in the sanctuary appointed by David, and that's around 1003 B.C. And his descendants, who were all Levites, they were very active in worship. Even when the temple is rebuilt uh, 500 years later, uh, the Asaphites are active again. So in, in theory, you could have a song of Asaph could come from in the days of David. It could come as late as in the days of uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. There is one thing in this psalm that gives a hint as to what time frame it comes from, and that's number two there, the reference to Assyria. There's a reference to Assyria in verse 8 that's very striking. That probably means that this psalm was written during that period when Assyria was the big dog, when they were the great menace that was threatening all the nations of the Middle East. And so that puts you in the time of the 800s BC or the 700s BC. So this is the time, say, of Hosea, the times all the way up to the times of Isaiah and Micah. Um, psalm 83 is placed here where it is around the others. Remember that these psalms are not written, they're not arranged in the order in which they were written. They've been rearranged. It's, um, it's at the end of the songs of Asaph. So from Psalm 73 to 83, all 11 of those are written either by Asaph himself or by the descendant, his Levitical descendants. One thing that combines Psalm 82, which we looked at last week, and Psalm 83 is that both of, both of them refer to the Lord as Most High and as the one who is sovereign over the nations. If you glance back, at Psalm 82, verse 6, Psalm 82, verse 6, I said, you are gods and all of you are sons of the Most High. There's that title used. And verse 8, arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. There's this sense of the Most High being over all the nations. And that's echoed at the end of Psalm 83. Psalm 83, verse 18 that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. So these two psalms, which are very different, Psalm 82 is a psalm of judgment against the rulers of Israel who were corrupted. Psalm 83 is a prayer for judgment against the evil nations, but both of them share this idea of God being most high. In fact, I didn't add this in, in your notes, but actually the songs of Asaph have a lot of references to the Most High. It's a title that they seem to prefer to use. I, I think I counted up something like eight or nine times that those are used.
One thing that's also interesting about Psalm 82 and Psalm 83 is that in Psalm 82, God is speaking. You might remember last time that most of Psalm 82 is the words of God speaking judgment. Uh, for instance, in Psalm 82, verse 2, how long will you, well, verse 1, God takes a stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And almost the entirety of the rest of the psalm is God speaking. But in Psalm 83, God seems to be frighteningly silent. You notice verse 1. Look again at verse 1 and see how the, psalm, the psalmist is begging God to speak. 83, O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. O God, do not be still. The psalm begs him to speak and act in judgment against the enemies of Israel. So there's a contrast between Psalm 82 and Psalm 83 in that way. All right, turn, open, open up your handout to the inside, and we'll talk about uh, what we can say about the background of this. Um, in the middle of Psalm 83, and that's verses 6 to 8, there's a list of the nations that surround Israel, and there are 10 nations that are listed. Uh, as being the enemies. And these are, in some ways, the traditional enemies of Israel. And the list generally moves from the south to the east to the west and then to the north. That's the, sort of the general flow of the listing of the names. Uh, so verse 6 mentions uh, nations that are to the southeast. So verse 6, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites. So if you look at that map, I don't know how well you can read. I have to take my, lift my glasses up. Here, how, this looks uh, rather academic. I thought I had readers in the bottom of these lenses, but uh, at, at the bottom there, you see in the bottom right on the map it says Edom, and then just above it to the right it says Moab. And then the, the other two that are mentioned in that verse are the Ishmaelites who lived further to the east and the south out in the Arabian Peninsula. And the Hagrites, we think, are descendants of Hagar, who would be relatives of the Ishmaelites. They also would have lived out, for, well, let me draw it for you, out here further in the east. So verse 6 mentions enemies in the southeast. Verse 7 mentions enemies in the east, and then the west, and then the north. So verse 7 starts off with Gabal, and Ammon, and Amalek. So uh, there's a debate about what Gabal is, there, because there are a couple places that have that name. There's a city up in Lebanon named Gabal. And so some thought, okay, it starts in the north and it goes back down and it ends back up in the north. But there's another, uh, another uh, Gabal is over in Edom. It's the place called Petra, uh, that famous city, uh, the ruins of which are still visited today. So I, I'm inclined to think that Gabal is in the southeast. It goes back to the southeast, like verse six was, and then Ammon. That's uh, if you look at your if you look at your map, that's up in almost like the northeast or the center east. It's that orange area there. So we've gone from the lower southeast to the east, and then the next thing mentioned is in verse seven, Philistia which is over on the west. It's that green spot on the west side of the map. And then it ends with, and the inhabitants of Tyre, that's in the northwest. 
That's in Phoenicia, that's modern day Lebanon. So uh, you see how the map is moving. We're starting in the southeast, going up that way, up and down that way, and then over to the west, and then up now into the north. Then verse eight mentions Assyria. Assyria also has joined with them. Assyria is not even on the map. Assyria is way up there in the northeast. Actually, I see for you, northeast. I forget, I've got to do a mirror image here. Uh, and uh, Assyria isn't located close to Israel in, in like these other nations are, but it would, it would invade this territory. It would actually end up gobbling up all of these nations, almost all of them eventually. So 10, uh, 10 traditional enemies of Israel are listed. Now there's something that's interesting is that the Assyrians are mentioned, but think about who is not mentioned. For instance, the Egyptians are not mentioned. The Egyptians had been enemies of Israel for a very, very long time. The Egyptians aren't mentioned, and the Babylonians are not mentioned. I mean, the Babylonians are the ones who would actually defeat Assyria and overthrow Jerusalem, something Assyria never did. So that, I think, is a, a little hint to us about when this psalm was written, that it was written in a time when the Egyptians weren't that powerful and the Babylonians weren't that powerful, but Assyria was. And again, that puts us in the time frame of the 800s and the 700s BC. There isn't any specific crisis in Israel's history that's named. We're not told, you know, what battle or battles is this. There, there are times in the Old Testament, as you look through the books of uh, Kings and Chronicles, you can find times when some of these nations were conspiring against Israel. Second uh, Chronicles 20, for instance, mentions four or five of these nations against Israel. But you won't find any Old Testament passage that has all 10 of them going against the nation. And, and for that matter, there's no record in ancient history that we've found yet where all 10 of them are simultaneously going against Israel. And because of that, there's a popular idea that I, I didn't even know about this until uh, this week as I was researching this. All over the internet, there's this theory that the Psalm 83 war is something that's going to happen around the second coming. Because they say, well, it, it didn't happen in ancient history, so it must be a prophecy. The problem is there's nothing in the psalm that hints that this is prophetic. In fact, it's describing things in the past tense. Now, it's may, maybe we're missing some historical information. Maybe there was a great uh, uh, event, a single event like this. But I think what's more likely is that this psalm is poetically poking at all ten of these traditional enemies who seem to endlessly being trying to attack her. Maybe not all at once together, but throughout the many centuries, they always had one of these spots on the map was inflamed against them. And Israel lived in covenant with God, and God would protect her as long as she was faithful to that covenant. But notice that the enemies in Psalm 83, verse 5, they have a covenant too. They have conspired together with one mind against you. They make a covenant. They, they've made a covenant against God. And, and, and I think this is not so much a formal covenant that's being described as it is the, the, the mindset of their rebellion, that they will not have the name of Yahweh setting up a kingdom in their midst. This is the same kind of thing that David talks about in Psalm 2, when he says, why do the nations rage and the, and the heathen imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us cast out their shackles from us. 
We don't want that, this influence here. We don't want this kingdom here. We don't want the rule of Yahweh in our midst. So what Psalm 2 describes in very general terms, Psalm 10 describes by pointing out the different spots on the map where these enemies could be found. So I think then this song at the bottom of the second page is not a single snapshot of one particular threat so much as it is more like a stained glass window of different scenes that, uh, that were common threats throughout time. And the song then would have been used in worship whenever the nation felt threatened by enemy invaders. If you think about, we, we do this with some of our songs too, like the Marine Corps hymn. From the halls of Montezuma to the shores of Tripoli, we will fight our nation's battles or land and o'er the sea. Thank you, Ed. My dad was a Marine. I ought to know that. But, uh, but does that mean that our, we're going to send our troops to Tripoli next week? Or to, you know, no. no this is, we're taking snapshots of historical events and we're weaving them together in a song to illustrate, you know, our history and our heritage and the battles that we faced. And I think Psalm 83, in a, in a similar way, does that. I'll go over to the third page, and I'll uh, note a few other things before we uh, start to walk through the psalm verse by verse. Um, God's names that are used in Psalm 83, there's four different titles, four different names for God that are used. There's Elohim, that's used in verse 1, O God, O Elohim. Do not remain quiet, and that's used again in verses 12 and 13. Uh, but also in verse 1, there's another word for God. Do not be silent, and O God, O El, El and Elohim are related words, but they're actually a little bit different. Uh, do not be still. Then there's Yahweh used in verse 16. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Lord, O Yahweh. There's the actual name of God that's used in verse 16 and verse 18. And then verse 18 also has Elion, most high. Um, you are the most high over all the earth. This variety of names uh, is, is telling because here's this time of distress and the psalmist is pulling on his knowledge of God, the different ways that he can be described to, to draw uh, comfort in this time of crisis. And so we ought to as well in our times of hardship to remember all the things that God is, all the different ways that God has revealed himself. <clears throat> Another thing about this psalm that stands out, particularly at the beginning, uh, is something I, I mentioned already, and that is God's silence. Verse 1 talks as if God is not talking. Um, look again at that verse with me. Oh God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. And oh God, do not be still. And what he's saying in these words is for God to, to speak, to speak decisively, to make a decision, to act, to, to listen, and then to act. Actually, in the second phrase there is more properly translated. It should be, oh God, do not remain quiet. Do not be deaf. Do not be deaf. And oh God, do not be still. God, say something. God, hear us. God, do something. That's what's implied by these three statements. Sometimes it does feel like God is silent and deaf and inactive. When you've been praying and praying and 
maybe maybe it's the answer to prayer you're wanting you're not saying or maybe you're not even getting a sense of peace uh, you're you're overcome with anxiety and you're wondering you know when is God going to help but the psalmist knows that that's not true God is not forever silent God is not really deaf God is not inactive and that's why he prays the way he does uh, as the verses roll on so we, this psalm is a good example of our not letting our feelings and our perceptions about God overrule the way. You know, if God really is silent, and doesn't, meaning he doesn't respond to anything, if God really is deaf, meaning he doesn't hear anything, if God really is quiet, still, that means he doesn't do anything, then why pray? You see, he really isn't those things. We just feel like he is. Uh, but the rest of the psalm moves on this, with the element of faith that God is not that way. And we have to remember that too. Uh, also, notice how, in some ways, the psalm prays about the past. In verses 9 to 12, there's a reference to several victories from the days of the judges. And that would have been four to 600 years before the psalm was written. Um, look, look with me back at verse 9. Deal with him as with Midian. Now that's talking about in the days of Gideon. As with Sisera and Jabin at the Torrent of Kishon. That's in the battles of Barak. So verse 9, the troops from Midian were defeated by Gideon. That is from uh, the book of Judges chapter 7. Actually, this is a battle. The, the defeat of the Midianites by Gideon is something that the, the later Old Testament looks back to again and again and again. Even in the prophecy in Isaiah 7, you know, uh, unto us a son is born, unto us, uh, uh, sorry, 9, Isaiah 9. Even in the middle of that, there's a reference to what God had done up in the north, how he'd brought victory uh, before and he would do it again. So troops were defeated by uh, Gideon, of the Midianites. In the second half of verse 9, he mentions Sisera and Jabin at the torrent of Kishon. So this is when Sisera, who was the commander of the Canaanite king Jabin's army, was defeated by Barak in Judges 4. The Kishon is a river that runs uh, out to the, um, uh, from the west into the Jordan River, and that's where very decisive victories were won. Uh, that's up in the north also. Verse 10 uh, says, who were destroyed at Endor. Uh, both Barak and Gideon's victories were in the Jezreel Valley, where Endor is. So uh, the Jezreel Valley is one of the great valleys up in the north. That's supposed to be a U. Uh, one of the great valleys up in the north. Endor sort of sits right in the uh, middle of that. And so both Gideon's victories and Barak's victories were near there. Verse 11 uh, make their nobles like Oreb and Ze'eb, Ze'eb, and all the princes like Zeba and Zalmanna. And you say, who are those? <laughs> These are the names of the chieftains of the Midianites in Judges 7 that Gideon defeated. And then the kings of the Midianites, Zeba and Almanna in Judges 8. Uh, little known anymore, aren't they? I mean, you have, to, you have to go look them up in a Bible dictionary. Who are these guys? Well, and notice how, what their, what their uh, end was. Look, look at verse 10. Who became as dung for the ground. <laughs> Not much of a memory <laughs> for these people. No wonder we have to look up their names. Hmm. Uh, the fact that these uh, places of victory are all up in the north 
might highlight the fact that, again, this was written in, during the time when the Assyrians were a threat, because the Assyrians, when they invade Israel, are going to come down from the north. So this place where Israel was threatened with defeat is actually a place where God had brought really great victories before in the past. And, uh, and, and so the psalmist is meditating on the past, what the Lord has done to fuel his faith for the present, that the Lord would, as it were, do it again. Uh, I want to have us turn to Isaiah 9, at, where you can see how this idea is uh, about what God did in a place. Isaiah 9. Uh, before we read a few verses from Isaiah 9, remember that Isaiah was for much of his ministry, a, po a prophet of doom and gloom. He had a ministry of basically telling, of telling the Israelites that for the most part, they were gonna die and perish <laughs> if they didn't stop violating the covenant. Now, he also had a written ministry. The latter half of the book are uh, uh, more positive messages, but most of his verbal ministry was very gloomy, but there were some bright spots even in that, like in verse nine. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. Now, where are those tribes? Way up in the north. These are the northernmost tribes of Israel. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Uh, he's talking about the, the regions up there in the north. But interestingly, these three descriptions, the way of the sea, the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, these are the three regional names that the Assyrians gave to this part of Israel. When the, when the Assyrians took over, they redrew the map, and these were the three regions up there. So the darkness that Isaiah is talking about is the gloom of the Assyrians overthrowing the northern kingdom and putting everyone in bondage. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You will multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest as when men rejoice when they divide the spoil. Well, why is there going to be such good news in this sad, dark place? Verse 4, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. Ah. There it is again. God brought victory up in the north once before, and he's going to do it again. Even though for a long time it was dark and depressed and overcome. And uh, verse 5, For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. That, that's a very poetic way of saying all the weapons and stuff of war is going to be gotten rid of. Uh, because there's not going to be any more war. When verse 6 comes about, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of, the, of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. 
So here is both the first coming and the second coming of Messiah, all wrapped up in one prophecy. And this child who's born will grow to be a mighty, victorious king, and he will bring an end to war. There'll be a great, that land up in the north, that's where Jesus began his ministry, remember? That's what the Gospels point out. Uh, the light started to shine there first, and eventually it will come to overthrow all of these worst enemies. And so just as Isaiah 9 looks back to what God did at Midian, so here in Psalm 83, uh, the psalmist repeatedly talks about what God did with the Midianites as a token about God's ability, God's ability to bring to an end the oppression that his people experience. So the psalm shows the value of meditating. meditating on what God has done uh, in his word as well as uh, in, their, in their history to encourage us about how God can protect us in the present and what God can do for us in the future. One last thing about Psalm 83 we'll uh, say by way of note is that this psalm refer has many prayers for enemies and uh, you know we're I often joke about this, that, you know, when we encounter these prayers for judgment, like the psalm ends with, that as Christian readers, we're a little bit uncomfortable because Jesus said, pray for your enemies, but are we supposed to pray for them like this? <laughs> you know, oh, God, kill them, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and these prayers here are sacred scripture. This is inspired text. This is not just the psalmist sort of out of sorts. And if he knew Jesus, he wouldn't have said these things. It's not, it's not, but these are biblical prayers. Um, sometime later, I'll, I'll do a, another study on the imprecatory prayers and ways to uh, appreciate them. But, but notice that the motive for these prayers is not just raw revenge, but really it's a desire for God's glory. Israel is God's covenant people. And if God forsakes the covenant and allows these enemies to overtake them, it will diminish God's glory. And really, the enemies of Israel see themselves as the enemies of God. There's a couple times where it's, it says, for instance, back in uh, verse 5, against you they make a covenant. They're not just against us, they're against our God. Uh, in verse 12, who said, let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. So God's glory is at stake. And, and yet, while the psalm wants the enemies defeated, this is one of those times where the imprecatory prayers also prays that they would be converted. Did you see that there? In, I, I believe it's verse 16. Uh, verse 16, fill their faces with dishonor, that is with shame. Why? that they may seek your name, O Lord. That, and name here is associated partly with God's glory. They've been seeking their own glory, so diminish that, bring them to an end of all of that so they might seek your name, your glorious reputation, and, and actually to seek yourself. Now, verse 17 goes on to, to say, let them be ashamed and dismayed forever. Let them be humiliated and perish. Uh, and yet, again, verse 18 that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. Uh, verse 16 assumes, I think, the possibility of repentance. Uh, verse 18 assumes more, and if they don't repent, then, let, then bring them to a knowledge of the truth, even if it be in judgment. 
you know, we want people to come to a knowledge of the truth in this life. Uh, that, the, as Paul says, that they may be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But you know what? In the end, everyone's going to come to the knowledge of the truth. It won't be a saving knowledge <laughs> for everyone, but everyone will know uh, to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, but our prayer on this side of judgment is that while we, on one hand, we ask God to stop the progress of evil, but on the other hand, we pray for evildoers, that they would come to the Lord. And the gospel uh, and the new covenant we're under really instructs us to pray even more about that than the saints of Old Testament Israel uh, did and were guided to. All right, let's uh, go to the, the, the visual outline chart on the back side, and we'll use this to walk through the psalm uh, verse by verse. Up at the top, there's a purpose statement that says, Israel's cries for God to respond to the battle cries of the nations around her, which seem always ready to dispossess her of the land. The psalm calls on God to act on Israel's behalf, as in the days of the great northern judges like Gideon and Barak, so the nations might glorify God aright. Uh, over on the left side in the green column, there's a uh, talk mention about the headings. There are three headings. It says a song, a psalm of Asaph. So there's two musical notes. Uh, the difference between a song and a psalm is not much, and sometimes there might not be any difference. But this word song seems to be used for songs that are perhaps at times chanted. Uh, that, that doesn't mean there would be, that's just droning, but there's a certain kind of singing associated with that. And whereas the word psalm refers to music that's accompanied by instruments. And then we're told that uh, the author is an Asaphite, uh, part of that Levitical family. Now, the, the psalm itself, the poem itself, has two halves. In uh, one half, there's a complaint against the nations and pleas for God's attention to the ongoing aggression. Uh, and it, this uh, complaint breaks up into three parts. There's a triple call for God's attention in verse 1, for God to respond, for God to hear, for God to act. Oh, God, do not remain quiet. That's for him to respond. Do not be silent, or as I shared earlier, it's better translated, do not be deaf. And then lastly, oh, God, do not be still. That means, God, we want you to act. And then in verses 2 to 5, there's an accusation against the, the aggressors. Their, their proud and loud posturing is mentioned in verse 2. For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves in their military posturing and their plans to try to overthrow this realm. They're really opposing you. And notice the contrast from verse 1. God seems to be quiet, and verse 2, the enemies seem to be loud. And uh, verses 3 to 5 is their conspiratorial planning they are planning genocide for God's people. Uh, verse 3, they, have, they make shrewd plans. That shrewd plans is the same uh, kind of word used in Genesis 3 to describe the serpent who was crafty, the most crafty of all the animals. Uh, they make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. And throughout Israel's history, you'll find plenty of times where some of these nations would team up together against the Israelites. Verse 4, they are covenanting against God himself. They said, come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. Um, 
Actually, that's, yeah, that's verse 4. The coveting will come in verse 5. Now, you might say, well, you know, maybe this is a poetic overstatement, but no, I, you know, we know a little bit too much about Israel's history to know that this has not always just been an overstatement. I mean, there was uh, people like uh, Haman in the days of Esther who wanted to wipe them all out. And in our, close to our own time, there was a guy named Hitler who wanted to wipe them all out. Israel seems to constantly be surrounded by enemies like this. And, and this, these conspiracies where pagan nations uh, get together to try to undo God's uh, nation in, in the world is really a conspiracy against God himself in verse 5. For they've conspired together with one mind against you. They make a covenant. What striking. No, it would be, Israel had made a covenant with God. And now these nations make a covenant against God. And there seems to me to be something satanic about this. It's like an anti-covenant. <laughs> there's not only an anti-Christ, but you could say in the world there's such a thing as an anti-covenant. Verses 6 to 8 uh, is the mapping of the enemies. There's enemies to the south and the east in verse 6. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites. The tent, because th th that is their armies are ready for war. Uh, their troops have bivouacked. Verse 7, the enemies to the east, the west, and the north, Gabal in the southeast, and Ammon in the east, and Amalek in the east, and Philistia in the west, with the inhabitants of Tyre in the northwest. And then verse 9, enemies in the far north, Assyria also has joined with them. They have become a help to the children of Lot. Who, who were the two children of Lot that he had by incest. Do you remember? Edom and Ammon. So Assyria, way up in the north, is doing the same kind of thing that these enemies down in the south are trying to do. That's the kind of league that they're involved in. And then at the end of verse 8, there's Salah. There's that pause. Perhaps there'd been a musical interlude there. As Now it gives way to the second half of the poem, verses 9 to 18. These are imprecations. That's the $50 word that means prayers of judgment. Imprecations against Israel's enemies. Prayer for God's dramatic intervention. And this half of the psalm also breaks into three parts. There's, firstly, prayers evoking ancient deliverances in verses 9 to 12. There's a call for God's judgment in verse 9. Deal with them. Do with them, it is literally. Do with them, and now there's a recitation of past victories through Gideon and Barak. As with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin and the torrent of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground. So the Midianites, over the Midianites and over Sisera and Jabin, who perished on the land. That uh, phrase, they became dung for the ground, that's like they, they weren't even buried properly. It was like they became fertilizer. That's pretty graphic. And that's going to play off of what's said in the end of verse 12. Another recitation in verses 11 and 12 is over the Midianite commanders and the Midianite kings, it should say, commanders and kings who conspired against uh, the Lord, make their nobles against the land, make their nobles like Oreb and Zaeb and all their princes like Zebah and Zalmana, who said, let us possess for ourselves the pastures of God. Now, isn't that striking? They wanted the land. You know what? They got the land, but they got to stay there as fertilizer. That's what verse uh, 10 says. 
So there's a recitation about what God had done in the past. We know you can deliver us, God, from anything. We've seen you do it before. Verses 13 to 15 are prayers for judgment that envision nature's wrath, for enemies to be blown in the wind in verse 13. Oh God, make them like the whirling dust. Maybe your version says something like the tumbleweed. And it's uh, make them like the, the gilgil is the word. It's a, a word for something spinning uh, around like that. If it's, if it's the wind, it could be this. If it's the things blown by the wind, I think it's more like that. Blow them away like so much chaff and tumbleweed. Verse 14, for the enemies to be burned in wildfire, like fire that burns the forest, like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. Everyone goes running from those things. Even today, those fires come and people start packing their stuff. That'll get your enemies to move. And then it's even more dramatic in verse 15 that they'd be terrified by a tempest. So pursue them with your tempest. Terrify them with your storm. Like one of the great windstorms that sweeps through the Middle East, the Samum, or the Habub. Um, then after those pictures from nature, uh, there's a change in verse 16. Verse 16 is the beginning of a new set of prayers, partly because the, the, the tone changes. It's more about shame and glory in these last three verses. But also, verse 16 uses a command, which was, hasn't been used since verse 13. Fill their faces with dishonor. So here's now prayers invoking God's glory. For proud enemies to be shamed in seeking God. Fill their faces with dishonor that they may seek your name, O Lord. You know, there's a positive function for shame. Sometimes we, uh, uh, psychologists will talk about shame as a terrible motivator. Uh, And that's true sometimes. That's not true always. There is such a thing as biblical shame. Uh, especially if it results in repentance. Let them be humiliated. Verse 17, now I think speaks about those maybe who are not going to repent. Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever. Let them be humiliated and perish. Uh, This may not be necessarily a reference to hell. It could, but it may be speaking more nationally. You know, let me think about today. Now, how, where, who... How great is the country of Edom today? <laughs> How about the Ammonites? How are they doing? How about the Ishmaelites? The country of Ishmael? Well, I mean, the Ishmaelites are spread here and there. How about the Philistines? How are they doing? I mean, you go through, How about the Assyrians? I mean, you go through these. Some of them have a little bit of national identity left, but for the most part, these nations are nothing anymore. Uh, verse 18 is the prayer that, for, that all, whether they repent or not, whether they repent or whether they're judged, for them all to recognize the matchless name of the Most High, that they may know that you alone, whose name is Yahweh, are Elion, are Most High over all the earth. That's his prayer. He wants God's glory to be great. You and I have a commission to make God's name great too although our tactics are different. We are involved in a different kind of war. We're involved very consciously in a spiritual kind of war, battling against things that are not flesh and blood, that we may advance the name of Christ. We have battles and we have oppositions and we have times, there are places where God's people seem to be threatened as if they won't exist anymore. But God has a battle plan that's going to win the day. And so we need to take courage that the Lord is the one who's mighty over it all. 
and he can advance his cause and protect his people. Father, we thank you for this psalm. This, in some ways, is a strange and foreign psalm to us, mentioning names and places little known to us. We know for your ancient people it brought comfort to think that though they were surrounded by everyone who was hostile to them, you had proven in the past that you could protect them. And Lord, we take courage to know that even though we live in a hostile world that in which we often feel completely surrounded and outmatched, that you have proven you can protect us and keep us and keep your cause going. So, Lord, in the spiritual battles we face, may we remember that you are the Most High and that you have a battle plan to win the ages and that your Son has already demonstrated that victorious power in defeating death itself. So may we be encouraged that the victory is ours and we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In Christ's name we ask it.